This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. You can open up your Bibles uh, to John chapter 9 this morning. You know, there's a few things that is shared among every single human being that has ever lived and that ever will live. And one of those things is pain or suffering. That pain is going to be acquainted with every single human being in existence. You know, in the summer of 1997, I was two and a half years old to date myself. Um, but my mom, she received news that would change her life for forever, forever. Uh, she was di- diagnosed with this disease called multiple sclerosis, otherwise known as MS. And MS is a disease that impacts the brain, it impacts the spine, and it impacts the optic nerve system, which all makes up what we call the central nervous system. And we don't know the exact cause of MS, but what we do know is that uh, the immune system is triggered to begin to attack the central nervous system. And that this leads to uh, a disruption of communication uh, from this wire-like fibers in your body that communicate between the brain and the rest of your body. And it interrupts that communication, which has impacts on, and it can trigger so many symptoms, symptoms like numbness and tingling. Have you ever had your foot fall asleep or your leg or your arm or whatever? That's something that can happen. Mood changes, uh, pain, memory loss, fatigue. It can even cause blindness and paralysis. And yet for the past 25 and a half years, my mother has had to experience this pain and this disease. And here's what we know about pain is pain doesn't just affect the person involved. That pain actually seeps into the people that have to witness the person going through the process. That they have to stand there helplessly. And maybe you can relate to that this morning. Maybe you have some pain or some suffering happening in your life, whether it's a disease or a loss of relationship or loss from death or whatever it may be. Or maybe you are the person that has to stand there and watch helplessly. And there's nothing that you can do. And yet, as a society, as American culture, we try to numb out the existence of pain. In fact, Science Daily tells us that America alone spends $635 billion a year on pain management that the number one cause of people going to the ER is due to pain. In fact, it's over 53% of the reason why people head to the emergency room. And if you were to go, pain is such a problem for humans that if you were to ask an atheist, why don't you believe that there is a God? One of their top three reasons is because of the existence of pain, the existence of suffering. In fact, Robert Ingersoll, a well-known atheist, said this, that, that Injustice here on earth renders justice in heaven impossible. And yet in the irony of it, that's one of the reasons why I love scripture so much is because it doesn't back down from the hard questions of life. 
It doesn't shy away from it. In fact, one of the major themes of scripture is this idea of suffering. It's this idea of pain. And that the Bible gives ample evidence for us as humanity to bend our knee to a God who cares and that there's purpose in our pain. And that you and I, as human beings, we aren't trying to muster up our own meaning into the, what we feel is the meaningless darkness around us and this pain, that the pain has a purpose, and we aren't left in the dark on the meaning of darkness. And as we find ourselves in John chapter uh, 9 this morning, I want to give some context as we work through this uh, text um, this morning. So we find ourselves here, Jesus is coming out of what is John chapter 8, this scene where he uh, has a debate with the religious leaders over two major claims that he says. The first claim is that Jesus claims he is the light of the world, okay, that I am the light of this world. And the, the, the Jews, the religious leaders, come back to Jesus and they're like, what, what are you saying by this, Jesus? And their rebuttal to him, they say, are you saying that you are greater than Abraham? The, the father of our faith, the guy that, who has founded the faith, who we replicate every single day of our life, are you greater than he is? And Jesus' response is, before Abraham was, I am. And Darren Moe spoke about this, but this ticked the religious leaders all the way off. And I don't want to get too bogged down by this, but we need to examine this, this claim, examine this statement because of the implications it has on the rest of the narrative story of Jesus here on earth. Uh, today, we know that the Bible is under attack by philosophers and by cultish, cultish religious leaders because they say that Jesus, in fact, never claims to be God. And yet, when you look at this statement closer, that's exactly what he's doing. Jesus here, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, is claiming deity. And we know this because in Exodus chapter 3, in Exodus chapter 3, what we get a a scene of is Moses is uh, called by God to go to the people of Israel and to free them from the Egyptians, right? And he's having this conversation with a burning bush, also known as God. And they're having this conversation, and Ab- or Moses is like, Who, under whose authority am I sent? How are they going to trust me? How are they going to believe me? And God responds to Abraham to tell them that I am has sent you. So Jesus here is explicitly claiming to be God. This is what Bible scholars call a tetragrammaton, which is a big word, as a name of God. So he is explicitly claiming deity. And we know this because of how the religious leaders react to this claim. They are so outraged, they literally in that moment pick up stones to throw at Jesus to kill him for blasphemy. They want him dead. And this is now the turning point of Jesus's ministry because before this moment, there was no parameters, there was no rules, there was no laws to a Jew listening to the teachings of Jesus, to follow Jesus. But now after this claim of blasphemy that the Jews said, there is now rules that they submit that if you follow Jesus, if you uh, follow him as a disciple, you are no longer allowed in the temple. 
You are no longer allowed in the place of worship. And this is the turning point of Jesus's ministry where he has now, he has been focusing on the crowd who has begun to make up their mind about Jesus and he focuses in on his disciples. And we are now to the sixth of seven miracles that John uh, goes after in his book. And Jesus knows that his life is coming to an end. And so he switches his ministry and his focus to his disciples so he can equip them and prepare them for the message he has for the world. Have you found John chapter 9 yet? Yes, sir. Awesome. Good job. All right, we're going to start in verse 1 this morning. It says this. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I want you to underline that. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There's that statement again. And after saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with his saliva. Gross. And put it on the man's eyes. Grosser. And he told him, go, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made mud, put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. That's God's word. Let's pray this morning. Uh, Lord, we just ask that you show up this morning. You know, Spirit, you are already moving, but I pray that we as a church would open our hearts to the message that you have for us this morning. And I pray over this church as we wrestle through this and we can examine the darkness and the suffering in this world, Lord, that we know that we have a God who is greater than the suffering. And so I pray today that you would speak to us, speak for me, speak in spite of me, speak because of me, Lord. And and I pray all of these things in your name. Amen. So there's a a roadmap I want to point out to us that we're going to use uh, to decipher this text this morning. It's a pretty simple one, but it goes like this. It goes from darkness to the light of Jesus to sight. So the first thing I want to examine is the darkness. And one thing I need to point out to us in this morning prior to going into the text is that Jesus would often use the physical experience of man to teach the lessons he was going after in the spiritual sense. Okay, and so in this chapter, what we see is there's a man born blind, Jesus claims the light of the world, and then he heals this man. Blindness, often in the Bible, is a symbol of spiritual darkness, of an unaware or unallegiance to God himself. Uh, This past Sunday was the 65th annual Grammy Awards show. It was aired in front of 12 12.5 million people, and the big ticket item that evening was this guy named Sam Smith. (coughs) Excuse me. Sam Smith. His partner was this girl, uh, well, 
not really, girl. Uh, Kim Petra, anyways, is her name. Uh, and they re- Sam Smith, back in September, released a song named Unholy. And I got to be honest with you, like, this song is what the teenagers would call a bop, okay? Or my generation would call it a banger. Maybe your generation would call it a hit. I don't know. But this song was massive. It still is massive. It's everywhere, okay? It's played in grocery stores. It's played in the mall. It's played in gyms. And when I first heard this song, I enjoyed it, got to be honest, because here's the thing is my wife and I, we work out at this gym called The Body Shop, okay? And the lyrics, they go like this, that daddy is getting hot in the body shop. And so Joel was getting swole, okay? That daddy was getting hot. And so I didn't really listen to the lyrics. I just heard that part and it amped me up, okay? But then when I came home to show Michaela the song, she hated it because she actually listens to things like more deeply than sometimes I do. Um, And she later tweeted about it, or not tweeted, Instagram posted about it. Um, and to our, her surprise, she was just kind of met with a lot of, no, this song is this, this song is good, it's, it, it handles this portion. Well, here's the thing is, Sam dressed, uh, to perform this song, he dressed up as the devil. And on stage, he had all these extras that were dancing around him, dressed up as demonic uh, beings. And that Kim, who was the, the co-star, was in this cage, almost like this succubus, being worshipped by these dancers. And he tweeted prior to the show that he was excited to perform this, that it's something special. And then CBS News, one of the largest news outlets in the world, says this. You can say that again. We are ready to worship. Wait, to worship Who? And I don't know the motives or the, the reasons why this went down, but I, I think it, here's the thing is, as believers, we would say this is controversial. I think that's a lie. If this was controversial, Sam would go against Hollywood. Sam would go against these mainstream media companies, against these music industry elites. He doesn't do that. He falls right in line with what the culture is telling him to do. This isn't controversial, believers. The Bible's explicit about this world, about their love of sin, about the love of the darkness, that this world hasn't just submitted itself to the darkness, it worships the darkness which is literally Romans 1, which we don't have time to go there, but you can go read it for yourself. But as I saw this, it reminded me of this quote by Charles Boulair that says this, that the devil's greatest trick he ever pulled off was convincing the world he doesn't exist. His second greatest trick was convincing them that he was a good guy. It's not hard. It's not hard to look around culture to see the suffering, to see the darkness, to see the pain that our culture is worshiping its sin. Yet the irony is, as believers who know the truth, we can look at this and just see that it is a mask, that there's pain going underneath, that they're just numbing out this pain because they don't know what to do with it. They don't know the truth. And in the passage here, it opens with Jesus. He's fleeing this moment of being stoned. And on his way out, he notices this man blind from birth. And we get a glimpse into the disciples' theology because they see Jesus, see this blind man, and they ask the question, Jesus, who sinned? 
Was it this man or was it parents? I need an answer to why he is suffering, to why he is going through what he is going through. And this is really where we get a glimpse of the first century uh, doctrines, their theology, because they would accuse this person who was born blind that he must have sinned, one, in the womb, maybe in a uh, a previous spiritual prior life to the, the physical life, or maybe that his parents sinned, which is we know that sin is attached to it. Because in later revelation from Paul, Paul explains this concept of original sin. That sin is not just tied to humanity, it is tied to the world. That it affected creation and that we know that and now understand because of him that we, through the birthing process, we inherit a tainted nature. A nature that is in need of a supernatural regeneration. And we have a proclivity to sinful conduct. A need of sin in our life. We can see that in our culture. We can see that in the world around us. But what about the light? Jesus claims for a second time, I am the light of the world. And this isn't just some sort of like dangling statement or filler phrase or something that's quick catchy or tweetable or fluffy. This is a profound juxtaposition to the darkness of this blind man, the symbolism of the spiritual world that the Jesus, the light of the world, desolates the darkness. Which brings us to Jesus, the light of the world, And I need to note here that this theme of light and darkness is a a major theme in the Gospel of John. There's over 24 verses speaking about light, 16 of them speaking about light, and eight of them in juxtaposition to the darkness. That there's an including an eviling, and it's a symbol of the darkness that the world faces. And Darren spoke extensively about this in, in, when he spoke on John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus claims for the first time, I am the light of the world. And I have a challenge for you this week. I want you to go home and I want you to compare John 1 and Genesis 1. And what you're going to see is this incredible connection between Jesus, the Messiah, and creation. And to tie it to this statement, here in Genesis 1-3, the first words God spoke in the Bible is, let there be light. And prior to the light, though, the, the Bible tells us that the earth was formless. There was no shape to it, that there was void, there was no fulfillment, and that darkness was over the earth. And then when God spoke, let there be light, what came after, what was void became filled, what was formless began to be shaped, and the darkness was put into its position. It was put on its heels and the light to the light. And God began to orchestrate into creation, and Jesus was here commanding darkness to back down, that we aren't left in the dark as humanity to understand that from the beginning, Jesus was the plan. Jesus was the solution to the darkness. And Jesus says here, I'm the light of the world. I blast darkness out of existence eventually. But in the meantime, I'm all over it. 
I'm doing the work of my Father. I am fulfilling prophecy. I'm healing the sick. I'm caring for the orphan. I'm caring for the, the widow. I'm healing and preparing the way for the Holy Spirit to move. In the meantime, I am all over it. Jesus hasn't left us alone to feel like the darkness is meaningless. And it's because of Jesus that you can't look at the horrors of this world and proclaim it's meaningless. It's what he says in verse 5, that it is for the glory of God. And in this profound moment, Jesus puts on display before his disciples the truth of who he is, his deity. He spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it on the man's eyes, commands him to go and wash. And the fact here, it was something that jumped out to me was the fact that Jesus, prior to, moments ago, is about to be murdered and on his way out of the temple notices the blind man. Look, y'all, I hardly have time for people at the grocery store, let alone when people want my head. And for the first time, this blind man who has had this, in, had this experience, this disease, this pain his entire life, in a moment experiences Jesus. And in the darkness in his life, due to this simple encounter of Jesus, this light of the world, the darkness is put onto his heels and he's given sight. He's given the ability to see, which is my last point, which is the sight portion. And we don't know too much about this blind man. What we do know is that he was born with it. And now he's a man. So he has lived with this existence of blindness for several, if, several years, if not decades. He was born with this condition. He lived out his entire existence up to this point in the darkness. Uh, we also can conclude that from the disciples' question, there would have been shame attached to this blindness. Right? They're not afraid to ask Jesus, why is he blind in front of this man? That culture would say, no, dude, you're blind because you messed up. You're blind because your parents messed up. And so there's shame attached to this. But we also know that he uh, is a beggar. We learn that in verse 8. We know his parents are cowards. Because later in the chapter, in verse 18, I believe, he has this, they have this encounter with the religious leaders and they ask his parents, well, how did this happen? And they go, no, don't ask me. I don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. He's of age. Ask him. So they're cowards. We also know that since he was a beggar, his parents probably couldn't provide for him or that because of the shame that he experienced and because of the shame they experienced of the attachment to sin, to the blindness, maybe they refused to pay for him. And yet in this moment, he's given his sight and he sees Jesus. And I want to say it's not physical because he's told to go, but he sees Jesus in spirit, the spiritual sense. You see, Jesus saw this man and healed him for the glory of his father. And the people who know him begin to question him. They begin to ask him, like, what, what do you mean? Is this, is this really the guy? Are you sure? I don't know. Maybe he looks like him. Maybe he's not him. They become more concerned with the miracle and the protocol of how the miracle went down on the Sabbath rather than the miracle worker. 
rather than the person who did it. In this moment of faith, I will have to say this, this man had to carry out for this person to spit on the ground, put mud on your eyes and tell you to go and wash. It, it, the obedience attached to that, there's something there. But this is my question for you through this morning, church. My question is, do you see? Do you see? Can you see that this man named Jesus who claims to be the light of the world in a few months is going to encounter what is the darkest moment in human existence? He's going to face the cross to where every single person that has ever existed, their sin was going to be placed on his shoulders, your sin, your parents' sin, your children's sin, every person's sin, past, present, future. And in that moment of the cross, when Jesus dies, darkness thinks it has the victory, that we have killed the light of the world, that we have gotten rid of this guy named Jesus, and yet he does this for you willingly. He does it out of love. And in that moment, the moment where the darkness think it, thinks it has victory, Jesus yet again in the miraculous somehow defeats death, defies the law of nature, rising from the dead, claiming victory over the darkness. Do you see? And maybe you're in this room for the first time and you are listening to this guy and, and who's, you've never seen, never met, but you are hearing for the first time that there's a guy named Jesus who claims to be the light of the world, who loves you and died for you. My question is, do you see? Would you submit yourself not to the darkness, but to the light of this world? The Bible tells us that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That darkness will not overcome or rule your life, but Jesus will. Maybe you're in this room and you've been following Jesus forever. I want to call you back to the light call you back to, to stand in the will of the Father, stand in the light of Jesus, that Jesus has given you a position that is greater than your circumstance. That even though you are rejected by the world, you have been redeemed by God. That anxiety, that depression, that fear, whatever, that is not king of your heart. Jesus is king of your heart. And I can't speak to all the pain that is happening in this room, but I know it's there. What I can speak to is what I've experienced. And prior to this message, I was messaging my mom back and forth about MS, and she sent me this text message. She said, Joel, I have prayed many times and have imagined myself touching the hem of his garment and him telling me, you are healed. Maybe someday that will happen. But the continual discomfort and pain is here to keep me humble. It's to keep me dependent on him for endurance. Church, praise God, her hope isn't placed on her own, her own physical health, her family, or what she has accomplished in this life, or her job, or whatever it is, or that her hope is placed on the light of the world. Do you see?
that a moment in your life where you encounter Jesus and accept him into your heart and give him your heart, that salvation will enter in your life. And what the Bible tells us is that you will be given the light of the world. You will reflect Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, he tells us this as believers to let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a a church that is doing that. There's so many ways that we are spreading the gospel globally. We're doing it locally as well in, in the generation's wing right now. In our women's ministry, in our men's ministry, we're doing this at Place of Hope every other week. We're doing it in countries like Haiti where we support uh, schools and a feeding program and we have planted churches. We're doing this in uh, Iraq where we are providing Bibles to be smuggled across borders. In South Asia, we're freeing slaves and attaching them to small businesses to where they're also attached to the local church. And the gospel is proclaimed and the light is shown to them. We're doing this in Nepal where we have built a school that doubles as a place, a church, an underground church where missionaries and people from all over can come to and be fed and be equipped to be sent back out. In Uganda, we are planting a church, our schools, we are drilling wells through community transformation in a medical clinic. Then we also plant a church, invite the kids in to get education, but they also get the gospel. In Ukraine, we've supported four organizations that are caring for children who have been affected by the war-torn country due to Russia. In Honduras, we support orphanages and special needs learning centers, a church as well. In Kenya, we've provided for a school there. Do you see That as believers, we are called to be a city on a hill, a light into this dark world. And as you go out this week, whatever you are dealing with, whatever you are going through, whatever pain you face or your family faces, that it's for the glory of God. And that you get to reflect the suffering of God and the suffering in your life and point people to Jesus. Do you see? Let's pray. Uh, God, we just, we praise you this morning. I praise you for this reminder that in this culture that it seems to be getting darker by the minute, our hope is not placed in politicians. Our hope is not placed in in world leaders or organizations or success. Our hope is placed in you. And you alone, I pray for this church as we go out individually in our own lives that we would proclaim the gospel to every single person that we can through our own life, that we would shine bright for you, that we would be a city on a hill and we would let our light shine before men so you get the glory, not us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen, church, you are dismissed.